Good morning. I'm Gail Koff, and I have been a member of Bible Center for nine years. During that time, I have had the opportunity to serve with the hospitality team, women's ministry, and the older, wiser, livelier saints known as the Owls. I have asked difficult questions in our family ABF. I've made friends in our community groups, and I've handed out bulletins as an usher. Also, for six years, I have had the privilege of leading the women's jailbird ministry alongside a dozen dedicated women. Consequently, the Lord convinced us to start Shiloh Village, a nonprofit that will ultimately provide transitional housing and a two-year mentorship program so a woman, when she is released from jail, can become self-sufficient and re-enter the community. You can always find a place to serve at Bible Center, no matter what your age. I agree with Rick Warren, who said, Faithful servants never retire. You can retire from your career, but you will never retire from serving God. Now, please turn in your Bible or your Bible app to Romans 16, 17 through 20. Please stand for the reading of God's word. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent and as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Gail. And welcome again to Bible Center this morning. I want to begin by telling you about the time I asked God to let me die. Nothing like beginning the sermon with a heavy phrase, a heavy thought, but let me give you a little backstory. I grew up in a great home, have great parents, still have great parents that pointed me to Jesus, uh, grew me in the gospel, went to church nearly every Sunday or more when the doors were open. My dad was a deacon, and so when your father's a deacon or a pastor, you're there even more. You're the one usually opening the doors. So I had a good upbringing. But as I got into high school and early days of college, I began to dive deeper into more of the legalistic traditions of our particular denomination. And not everybody in our church or not even everybody in our youth group, but for some reason it really resonated with me. And so I went off to one of the colleges uh, that our church recommended. I still think about the Promise Scholarship. Not many of us will hear much more about the Promise Scholarship, but I'm thinking about looking back how, how the, what a wonderful opportunity to take that here in West Virginia when it was still offered fully. But instead, I went off to another state and went to another school. Now, our school followed the traditions of our denomination in every way. And by every way, I'll give you some examples. 
Uh, there was only certain music that we were allowed to listen to in our particular uh, brand of Christianity. As a matter of fact, when you arrived on campus, if you can't imagine this, your freshman year, we all had to take all of our music. At that time, it was tapes, right? You remember tapes? A few CDs, and you throw them out in your bed, and they got to decide what you were allowed to listen to at college and what you weren't allowed to listen to. If you were a really good student and you wanted to work your way up through the ranks and become a dorm supervisor or an assistant dorm supervisor, the key was finding somebody to tattletale on. And the more you could tattletale, the higher in the ranks you could go. Now, I was dating a girl who's now my wife. She was my high school sweetheart then, and she went to another Christian college of similar stripe. The Christian school where she went, they used to joke that they had pink sidewalks for the girls to walk on and blue sidewalks for the boys to walk on. I can say that absolutely was not true, but it was close. In her particular school at that time, you had to declare your race when you entered uh, the university, and you could only date people of your race. Now, looking back on that and thinking about how horrible that was, thankfully they've repealed that. But just to give you an idea, a sense of the stripe and the brand of Christianity under which we grew. When my wife eventually came to my college, we were married after our sophomore year, and it was against the rules for you to go to the movies. Along with music and all the other rules, you certainly couldn't go to the movies. And I can remember we would come here to West Virginia, and nobody could see you going to the movies, so we would go to Parkersburg, because what happens in Parkersburg stays in Parkersburg. <laughs> So as we begin to unfold our story, you have a little sense of, of where we're from and how God is still healing us, uh, even though we've been married 16 years, almost 17. But in 2002, I graduated from Bible college and set off as an evangelist, and for almost five years, traveled from church to church for about 45 weeks a year, holding youth revivals, adult revivals, different crusades, and learned a lot through that. One of the biggest lessons I learned, or the ways in which we learned, was by pastors who'd been in ministry for years. About a year into it, I was on my way to Albany, New York, to preach a youth crusade, and I remember looking at my notes there on the plane. My wife was home expecting Katie. She was just a month or two away from, from Katie being born. And I was looking at my notes and going through my Bible, and I had this long list of rules I mean, after all, I'm about to preach to teenagers at a youth crusade, so I had to tell them the hundred things they weren't allowed to do as Christians, especially Christian teenagers. And the Spirit of God spoke to my heart about how that I was an evangelist supposed to bring good news, but instead I was bringing bad news. And I can remember thinking, this is like the Christian version, you know, of, of praying that you'll die. I can just remember saying, Lord, this isn't fun anymore. You know, I've, been, I've grown up in this, I, I do this for a living, and it seems like everywhere I go, I tell people, I give them the good news to be saved, and then I give them the bad news for all the years after their salvation. There's hope in Jesus for salvation. Now, here's a thousand things and a thousand ways you're not allowed to have fun. And so as the Spirit of God began to speak to my heart, I was like, Lord, I don't even care if the plane goes down. I've got life insurance. Uh, my wife, my young bride, my new baby would be fully taken care of. This isn't fun. I feel trapped. And I didn't hear a voice, but the Spirit of God spoke to my heart from John 8, 32. Now, when you grow up under nothing but the King James, the Spirit of God only speaks King James. 
And so the Spirit of God spoke to my heart, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And that stuck in my heart. And I can remember when we landed, I called Sarah and I said, Sarah, when I get home, we need to talk because I just don't feel like we're free in the Christian life. When I got home a few days later, we went for a date. And I can remember never even really making it out to the date. We stopped in a gas station parking lot and began to share stories about all that God had been teaching us and about how we knew this couldn't be all there is to Christianity. And that set us on a four-year journey. We couldn't immediately leave that denomination or leave that tradition because that's where our livelihood was, and we didn't know where we were going to go. If we leave one, where do you go to the next? And through that time, year after year after year, God began to show us what grace looks like and how that there is healing from hard religion. My father-in-law was attending a church here in Charleston and began to tell us about how the message of grace would go out Sunday after Sunday and about how kids and teenagers and, and people of all ages were hearing the message of grace. And he says, you've got to come to this place and you've got to hear about it. Grace is more than just for people who aren't saved, but grace is for also people who are saved. And in 2007, my family and I rolled into Bible Center Church looking for healing, looking for grace, looking for hope. And the message I'm preaching this morning is just a summary of the hope we found here and the hope I pray you'll find here too. Look with me, if you will, at your notes or your Bible, if you're taking notes, and we'll walk through Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 20. Number one, if you're taking notes, it's helpful to admit that spiritual abuse is real. Spiritual abuse is real. Before we read the verse, we're reminded that Paul wrote this book to Roman Christians. He hadn't yet been to Rome, but he desired to go to Rome because he wanted from Rome to launch, launch a campaign to Spain. And he was burdened and, and exercised over the Roman Christians. And so he writes them a letter particularly dealing with this challenge they were facing between Jews and Gentiles. In the early church, there were people who had a Jewish background and Jewish customs. People who had a Gentile background and Gentile customs. And they converged on the church, and really the only thing they had in common was the gospel. They believed that Jesus was their Savior. And you can just imagine, some of them probably wanted a Jewish service. Some of them probably wanted a, a Gentile service. There were a lot of preferences at stake in the early church, and it's always been that way, and it always will be that way. But we find the Apostle Paul writes, and he begins in chapters 1 and 2 dealing with their shame. And there was a lot of shame they were experiencing inwardly, and they were throwing that shame on each other, shame and blame. In chapters 3 through 11 of Romans, Paul advises them or reminds them what Jesus had done for them. In Romans 8, like we just sang about, there is therefore now no condemnation. There's no shame for you if you've put your faith in Jesus. Not only are your sins forgiven and doctrinally you're justified, you're, you're made right before God, but also your shame is gone. And so after 11 chapters on the doctrine of salvation, Paul begins to dive into more practical aspects in chapter 12. Here in this chapter, in verse 17, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, 
Watch out for those who cause divisions. If you're taking notes, the word watch out is the Greek, comes from the Greek word skopeo, and it means to scope out. It's the same word we get our word telescope, to watch, to keep an eye on. What are we to watch out for? What are we to scope out? Those who cause divisions. The same word is used in Galatians 5.20 as one of the fruits or the sins of the flesh. He says, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles in your path. The word obstacles is from the same idea as the word traps. It refers to something that's going to trap you, going to ensnare you. It reminds me, as a kid, we used to trap rabbits. Now, if you work for the DNR, please don't report me. Uh, This did not happen. But this was a kid. We used to trap rabbits because my uncle had two coon dogs. And so we would trap the rabbits and take them to my uncle's yard that was all fenced in. And his coon dogs were named Samson and Delilah. Uh, Coon dogs, rabbit dogs, two beagle dogs. So we'd let him go in the yard, and, and Samson and Delilah would chase him around. Eventually, the rabbits would get out to the fence, so it was okay. No animal rights activists need to email me. But we would trap those rabbits by putting bait that they loved in this box, and then we would have them and bring them to where we wanted them to go. Paul says there's people in your church trying to trap you People outside and inside trying to ensnare you. Ensnare you with what? He's going to tell us in verse 17. They're going to create obstacles. They're going to trap you contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Now, what doctrine? It's everything in Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 11. This idea that there's no shame, there's no condemnation. We stand in the presence of God just as righteous as Jesus. That's what justification is. Just as righteous as Jesus because of what Jesus has done for us. Taken our shame away. And so Paul says there's people in the church and people outside the church who are trying to teach you something opposite. And they're trying to bring you back under the bondage of the law. And so he says in verse 17, avoid them. Don't debate them. uh, Don't try to reason with them. Avoid them. Verse 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. It doesn't tell us what their appetites are. It's just used a general word for appetites, but it could have been power. It could have been money. It could have been morals, uh, immorality. Today, people will do crazy things in the name of religion because it protects their schools. It protects their publishing houses. It protects their denominations. And so Paul writes and says, don't let them enslave you. Don't let them trap you And any teaching contrary to God's word. For about 30 years now, we've called this spiritual abuse. Uh, Psychologists, psychiatrists often in the Christian world will call this spiritual abuse. I want to recommend a good book to you, The Subtle Power of Spiritual Abuse. It's there on your notes. Uh, This book was particularly uh, helpful to me at an important time of my life, David Johnson, Jeff Van Vonderen. Spiritual Manipulation and False Spiritual Authority Within the Church. If you grew up with this background, you want this book. If you know somebody who has the background, you'll want this book. But in the book, they give this definition of spiritual abuse. They say, it is the mistreatment of a person in need of help, 
support or greater spiritual empowerment with the result of weakening, undermining, or decreasing that person's spiritual empowerment. Every rule isn't spiritual abuse. Let's go ahead and clear the air with that. If you're a teenager, I have a teenager in the service. I have uh, one going to be a teenager soon. We want to let you know as teens, as students, that rules aren't spiritual abuse. Uh, Rules are good. It's kind of like one of my friends one day that said he was tired of all the rules of college, and so he wanted to go and join the Marines. Uh, Everywhere we go, there's going to be rules. Rules are good for us. But what we're talking about here is adding something to the rule. All right, In our house, there's all kinds of rules. But when you add something to the rule that insinuates that if you break the rule, somehow God, God's not pleased with you. Or if you keep the rules, God loves you more, then we've crossed the line into char- from character building into spiritual abuse. My definition of spiritual abuse, and maybe 100 years from now, somebody will publish it. I've written this, when a religious bully shames you to be more spiritual than Jesus, that is spiritual abuse. When a religious bully shames you to be more spiritual than Jesus, that is spiritual abuse. Shame and guilt are different. Guilt says, I have done something wrong. Guilt is healthy. It's normal. Shame says, I am wrong. It attacks our personhood, and it makes us, gives us devalued. It devalues us in the sight of God. Now, there's subtle ways that spiritual abuse occurs And we've all been guilty of receiving it. We've all been guilty of of giving it. There's those subtle ways, you know, when when maybe, uh, um, you know, one mom looks at another mom and she says, oh, you let your kids watch TV? Oh, you know what, you know, that's that's just a subtle way, you know, just a little dig. I know none of that ever happens at Bible Center, ever. But, you know, all those other churches it happens in. Um, Or maybe one parent looks at another parent and says, well, my kids go to this school, or my kids go to this group, and your your kids don't. Oh, you know, just just little subtle digs. Or or there's always the infamous, you know, you let your kids eat at McDonald's? You know, our kids only eat grass. (laughs) You know, oh, (laughs) Little, little subtle things, and it's going to be around forever. We, we need to learn to, to see each other through grace, but, but it gets a lot heavier, right? Those things evolve into bigger things, and, and we have our rules and these burdens we put on people's backs. When my brother was, was dying of cancer, uh, there, were, there were folks that came to my dad and my mom, and here he is. He died at almost age three or two and a half down here in Charleston, 1980. And there were some folks that came to my parents and said, well, evidently you've committed sins to cause God to give your son neuroblastoma. If you would confess your sin, God would heal your son. That's spiritual abuse. It seems like more and more every week I have conversations with people who tell me stories. And it's amazing that, that God's grace is, is, is working in any of our lives. But they tell me stories of, of things that happened in their past Wrong views of God that were perpetuated. This view of God that he was never satisfied. He's vindictive. He's waiting for you to make a mistake so he can point out all of your failures. 
And it's not unique to Baptists or Pentecostals or it's not unique to Presbyterians. It's, it's in all of denominations. One of our friends in Louisville, when she was 16, went to take a, partake of mass and she had done the genuflex wrong and she tells the story of the priest verbally reprimanding her in front of everybody. And so she said she would never step foot in front of a, in a church ever again. And then she was gloriously saved uh, through the ministry of our community group there in Louisville and is thriving in our local church. But it's in every denomination. Spiritual abuse is marked by intimidation, exclusion, isolation, humiliation, manipulation, authoritarianism. It demands loyalty, false accusation, more rules than Jesus, the inability to admit wrong. The leaders are never wrong or the hiding of sins. C.S. Lewis, I think, hit the nail on the head in this quote. C.S. Lewis writes, Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under a robber, robber barons than under moral busybodies. The robber barons' cruelty may sometimes sleep his cupidity may at some point be satiated, but those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. Spiritual abuse is very real. So what hope do we have? If it's real, what word does God give us as we begin to heal from this? And we're praying this month many of you will find a healing from this. Well, that brings us to our second point. If you're taking notes in your outline, number two, God cares about how you feel. Spiritual abuse is real, but number two, God cares about how you feel. Over in chapter 15 and verse 13, we could go through all chapter 14 and 15. But in chapter 15, verse 13, this just summarizes God's heart for his people. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. All the way over in verse 33, same chapter, chapter 15, verse 33. He says, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. We remember that the theme of Romans is God saving us, not only from our sin, but God saving us from our shame. And I love the way Romans 14, 17 summarizes it. Romans 14, 17 says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or of drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And it's so much the desire of God that you experience joy and peace and his righteousness that back in Romans 16, our main text, he says, if, if there's someone in your life, if there's a movement, if there's a system in your life that's robbing you of this joy, that's taking away the freedom that you have in the gospel, Paul does not mince words. This is super serious. He says, watch out for those, verse 17, who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught and avoid them. Sarah and I, in the last 16 years, have ministered to a number of families 
I'm thinking particularly of a family where there was physical abuse, there was emotional abuse, and all kinds of, of, of horrible things going on in the house. And, and the, it was hard for the wife uh, to want to leave uh, or at least separate until her husband could get some help. And that was our recommendation. Let us as a church, let your elders step in and protect you and help you and get your husband some help. And there's this, uh, I've never experienced it, so I speak as, from, as an outsider, but there's this feeling of guilt, right? Like, well, I, I know he's hurting the kids, but, but you know, I, we've been together for so many years, I, I need to give him another chance. Or, or uh, there's so much water under the bridge, and what, what I do financially, where am I going to go? Or there's even sometimes among people who've been abused, this feeling of shame that they're the one to blame. Well, if I wasn't this, he wouldn't hurt the kids this way. If I wasn't this, he, he, would, he would be nicer to me. And while we look at that from a physical abuse perspective and we say, run, get away, get some help, too often we tolerate it when it comes to spiritual abuse. There's this idea that, that if someone is, is bullying you contrary to the gospel or heaping law on you, there's this feeling as though that we have to stick with it and we have to debate and somehow we have to try to persuade them or their movement or their church that, that this is wrong. And surely if we stay long enough, we'll be able to teach them grace. According to verse 17, Paul says, run. Paul says, get to a safe place, get out. What I tell young men and women is this, a, a bulldog could whip a skunk, but it's going to stink. A, a Rottweiler could whip a porcupine, but it's going to hurt. And so if we feel as though that we can stay in these systems and we can continually let them speak into our life and dominate us and bring shame and remove the gospel freedom that we have in Jesus, Paul says, you're fighting a losing battle. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are precious in his sight. And you are called 63 times in the New Testament a saint and anyone wants to put you under the burden and bondage of law, God says, run somewhere safe. You don't have to be talked to that way. You don't have to be treated that way because he says there's hope in Jesus. God cares about how you feel. Having grown up a little bit in part of this system, especially in college, there was this feeling in my mind that I wasn't allowed to have emotions. Now, for some of you who are emotional people, just bear with this next 30 seconds. If this doesn't make any sense. But some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, it's almost wrong to feel pain. It's almost wrong. And I remember some of this thinking to myself, well, I, you know, I just need to take it like a man. And we use spiritual reasons for it, right? Well, if I'm dead, dead in Christ, you know, if I'm indeed dead in Christ, then it's not my life anyway. And so anybody can treat me however they want because after all, I'm, I'm, I'm dead to my sin. I'm dead in Christ and, and, and my old man is gone. All these religious phrases. And what I found is I was putting all this emotion and just kind of burying it deep. You know what that has a tendency to do? At just the right time, when somebody says just the wrong thing to you 
And it might not even be in church. It might be at a little league game or a middle school basketball game. The ref makes a wrong call. And here it all comes, right? It all comes out. And one of the greatest things God has taught us in the last few years, it took counseling, it took help, was that it's okay to tell God how you feel. Read the Psalms. David says some things that will blow your socks off. David is writing in the Psalms saying, God, I pray they would die. You're like, well, that's just not acceptable. Well, in the New Testament, we know it's not acceptable, but read the end of the Psalms. He, God would always bring him to a place where he would just surrender and say something like, Lord, but I know you are in charge. I'm not in charge. But he got those emotions and laid them at the feet of Jesus. Spiritual abuse is real. God cares how you feel. But lastly, in number three, Jesus, believe that Jesus can heal. In verses 19 and 20, we're going to look at this in the next three weeks, phrase by phrase. But he writes, your obedience has been made known to all so that I rejoice over you. I want you to be wise on that which is good and innocent to that which is evil. Next Sunday, we're going to preach on putting the ball in the hoop. If you've been spiritually abused, just keep putting the ball in the hoop. I'll explain it next week. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. In two weeks, we're going to look at that phrase, this idea of the seeing the big picture. Where does Satan fit in in all of this? And, and all the way back in the book of Genesis, all the way forward to Revelation, where does it all fit together? There's a big picture that helped us heal, and I, I know it will help you heal. And then lastly, we're going to look at the end of verse 20 in three weeks, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. But Paul's baseline model back in verse 18 was this. He says, Contra contrary to the people who do not serve our Lord, this is what I want for your life. Then he goes into verses 19 and 20. But in verse 18, Jesus Christ, the Lord Christ, is his model. Often in the New Testament when Paul wrote and he wanted to say, don't do this, but do this, he almost every time pointed to Jesus. And for somebody who didn't travel with Jesus day in and day out, he knew a lot about him. I'm I wonder if Paul had in mind Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 when Jesus said these famous words, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Maybe you wonder, does Jesus know how I feel? When you're talking about spiritual abuse. Does Jesus know how I feel? Jesus experienced physical abuse. How do we know that? Because that's why they nailed him to a cross. Hey, in Matthew 23, he called the religious leaders vipers and snakes and a den of thieves. They didn't like that very much. Now, theologically, we know Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, but practically and physically, they hated his guts. People were flocking to Jesus because he gave hope and freedom and rest and joy, and they didn't like it. And eventually, they nailed him to a cross, but praise God, him dying on the cross wasn't in vain. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What is the gospel message? It's simply this. It's the good news that the living God who demands perfection of all humankind sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live a sinless life to suffer and die on the cross as a substitute for our sins, absorbing the judgment we rightfully deserve, to rise again, to ascend back into heaven, and to grant forgiveness and righteousness and the Holy Spirit at the moment we repent and believe. In a moment, I'll give you the chance to pray and receive Christ. No need to wait till tomorrow. We're praying you'll receive Jesus today. So what's the main point for Christians? What can we sink our teeth into? What can we take away on our way home? It's simply this. If this is you, please know you are safe in Jesus and in our church. You are safe in Jesus and in our church. Christians, let's be praying for people around us through this series if you have been a victim of spiritual abuse, emotional abuse, we're praying you'll find healing in our church, but we know it takes time. I'll give you a little word of warning. The people around you aren't perfect. Uh, the guy standing up on the platform isn't perfect. And at some point over the decades, we will fail you. But by God's grace, I pray that we stay focused on the gospel, constantly correcting, reminding each other that we must have gospel boundaries and that our ultimate hope is in Jesus himself. This past week, two weeks ago, one of our veteran members sent me the nicest email. She's sick this morning and couldn't be here, but this is what she wrote me. She said, Pastor Matt, when I read your sermon title for February, Tears of Joy Filled My Eyes, I came to Bible Center in 1973 thinking I'd never work in a church again. Four years passed before I finally realized that what I saw was real. In 1991, Pastor Lee Walker asked if I could write a blurb on my experiences for a brochure published that year. Bound tightly in a cocoon of depression, hopelessness, and insecurity, I walked through the doors of Bible Center in November of 1973. Saved at the age of 14, I had been active in church for nearly 30 years, but I was tired of playing politics, tired of trying to conform so I could be accepted by others. Weary of striving to please but never meeting expectations, I became a lifeless as a cocoon wrapped around me. Completely burned out, I told Pastor Bob Spradling I would never again work in any church. I planned only to occupy a pew for the rest of my life. When he, warmly, he still warmly welcomed me on those terms. And so I joined the church, relieved that I would be allowed to sit on the sidelines for the rest of my life without ever becoming involved. But it wasn't long before I realized that every person is appreciated because of who they are and their individual worth, including me. Gradually, life began to stir in my cocoon, the joy of my salvation. I love her words. The joy of my salvation awakened, warming my heart. The my butterfly of my life was out altogether, free to serve the Lord with all my heart. And today, as a veteran member of Bible Center Church, I enthusiastically join with starry-eyed wonder at how good God has been to me. And I praise the Lord for directing me to this church and allowing me to be part of this gospel family.
If this is you, please know you are safe in Jesus and you're safe by God's grace at Bible Center Church. Let's pray. This morning, if the Lord has spoken to your heart, before I pray for believers, could I pray with you as you receive Christ? In a moment, I'll just pray a prayer. There's no magic words in the Bible, but if you'd like to receive Jesus as your Savior, this morning, let me invite you to do just that. You can pray these words after me, with me, or in your own way. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I cannot save myself. But I believe you love me and died on the cross for me. I believe you rose again. I believe you can save me from my shame. Send your Holy Spirit into my life and make me a Christian. If you prayed that prayer like a man did two weeks ago, on the way out, would you just let me know let one of our pastors know. We have pastors, men, women, back in the living room. One of our pastors will be down at the front. Just let us know, hey, I prayed that prayer. We won't embarrass you. We won't make it awkward. we just love to follow up with you this week and get good material into your hands as you grow in Christ here. Christian, would you take just a moment as a follower of Jesus, ask God, what is your next step? Maybe there's some hurt that is started to surface today. One service isn't going to heal, recover, fix. But why not take a moment and ask the Lord to help you this month start on a journey that will give you back the rest of your life.